Hi, good day. Welcome to the Lowly Shepherd Podcast. I'm Pastor Jay, and uh, I'm flying solo today and probably for the next several weeks. Uh, I've had a, a good time with uh, Travis Welch, our Director of Missions for our association here in Kay County, and uh, uh, we, we've talked about a number of different topics uh, facing Christians today, and I'm going to kind of go a different direction for the next several weeks on this, and uh, I've been reading <laughs> I've been reading an interesting book, and uh, my, my congregation always laughs when I say that because it's like every time I read a new book, it's like, oh, no, he's got some new ideas about something. But uh, anyway, um, I, I've been reading this book called Pagan Christianity uh, by Frank Viola and uh, George Barna. And that's uh, George Barna from the Barna Research Group where we get a lot of those statistics and things that we see coming out from time to time. And uh, this book came back, uh, I think it came out in 2008. Uh, it's actually an, uh, an older book. I mean, it's, you know, uh, 15 plus years there. And uh, I just now have gotten into reading it. When I, and really, it's, it's dealing with a lot of the issues and things that I had already been thinking about for a number of years and had been spurred, spurned on by a, a number of other uh, books that I've read and articles I've read and sermons that I've listened to and whatnot. And so I want to kind of take the next several weeks and really kind of do uh, an overview kind of discussion about some of the topics of this book, and then sort of by way of a book review, I guess, as well, of this book and others uh, in dealing with these particular topics. And uh, the, the topic that Pagan Christianity, the book, deals with is that our modern Christian worship service is primarily, if not entirely, pagan in origin and not biblical. I'm going to say that again. The, the, the main idea of this book and the main idea of this idea, this movement, is that the modern Christian worship service that we attend every Sunday here in America is primarily pagan in its roots and its origins and not biblical. Now, that on the surface, just saying that just kind of makes you cringe as a pastor and as a Christian and you know, a longtime uh, uh, Christian that's gone to church for most of my life. You know, it's, uh, it's something that just kind of like, ah, you know, surely, you know, I mean, we, as a Southern Baptist pastor, certainly we are called people of the book. We believe in the, the uh, inerrancy and, and the uh, authority of Scripture for our life. And so to, to say that the, the very, um, you know, the most visual and, and most visceral expression of our faith is Sunday morning worship service, to say that that is unbiblical is like a slap in the face. And, uh, and the authors of the book will even acknowledge that. In the, in the, uh, the uh, introduction, they kind of say that. It's like, hey, if you're not ready to have your views challenged, go you know, give this book to goodwill. I think they say, you know, give this book away. Don't read it because we're warning you ahead of time. This is going to challenge you. Um, but it's not bad to be challenged. In fact, they quote uh, Socrates saying, a life unexamined is a life that is worthless. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, of course, Socrates and the Socratic method and dialecticism and uh, the, the early um, philosophical movements in Greece. And uh, what Socrates would do was go around and ask leading questions about the, the prevailing traditions and customs of the day. Well, uh, much like it does today, it irritated people to no end back in, in ancient Greece that he would dare question the validity of some of the customs and the traditions and the practices that they had done for years. Uh, and he was eventually put to death, and I believe the official charge was something like corrupting, corrupting the young. <laughs> um, but, you know, so times don't really change. People don't like their customs or their traditions to be questioned. Uh, 
um, you know, we always do things the same way and, and we like it this way and we're not going to do it, you know, any differently. I always kind of poke fun at my congregation because they always sit in the same, you know, seats every Sunday. And it's like, I know who's there based on where they're sitting on their seats. And if they move in a different spot, it's very confusing for me. Um, and, you know, I even have some members that are like, you know, uh, they come in and somebody's sitting in their seat, they'll be like really upset about it because that's the seat that they always sit in. It's a we're, we're creatures of habit, we're creatures of comfort, and we, we like our traditions and we like our customs and the things that we always do. It gives us some sort of peace and security, I guess, in our life, and uh, we, we don't want any kind of upheaval or change of that status. But um, we have to question where things come from, because we've got, with, with Christianity, you've got 2,000 years of church tradition and history and culture and customs that have been piled on top of each other uh, that are coming from a variety of different sources throughout the decades and the centuries. And, uh, you know, and most people, I mean, man, the vast majority of people in the church have no idea why we do what we do in a modern church setting or in any kind of historical setting. And, um, you know, why, why do we have a church building, for that matter? Why do, we, why do a lot of churches have steeples on them? Why are they set up the way they are? Why do we sit in rows or these benches, you know, called, sometimes uncushioned benches called pews? You know, what is the point of that? Why do we have, uh, sometimes in different denominations, this guy called a priest or an elder or a bishop? You know, uh, what, what is the deal with deacons? What is that about, you know? Why do we have uh, potluck dinners? Why, why do we have an order of service in a bulletin? And then why do we have a time of announcements in the, you know, the beginning or the end of our service? Um, why do we follow this format of like we sing you know, three songs, we have a prayer, we pass the offering plate, the preacher preaches, and then we have an invitation in the Baptist church. We have an invitation song and a call, an altar call to come forward and, and give your life. And so you know, why do we do all of these things? Why do we believe the way that we believe? Most Christians are content to just accept the thing, way things are without ever asking any of those questions. Um, but it is essential to ask those questions because we need to know and understand why we do and believe what we believe. Um, I remember a, a, an old illustration that somebody told me, I don't remember where it comes from, about uh, he always asked his mom, why she cut the ends off of her, her uh, I believe it was uh, some kind of pound cake. You know, why did she always cut the ends off the pound cake? And she says, I don't know. It's like my mom always did that, and I just, you know, followed what my mom did. And so he went and asked the mom. So, well, why do you, you know, the grandma, you know, why do you cut the ends off? Like, well, you know, my mom taught me to do that. Anyway, he tracks it down to the great-grandmother as to why she always cut the ends off of the pound cake loaf that she was making. And she says, oh, well, it's because I only had one serving pan, uh, and, and w when I made it, it was too long, so I had to cut it off to fit it in the pan. Well, that's a very practical solution, <laughs> but you have several generations of, of women doing the same thing that didn't have the problem about the pan. They were just doing it because that's how their mom had always done it, and they had no understanding or, or reasoning why <laughs> they did it that way. That's how most of us live and dwell in the church today. We we do the same things every week, and we have no concept or no idea why we do them that way. And so I want to spend, like I said, the next several weeks talking about this topic, and, and in particular certain areas, uh, like the order of service, the church building we're going to talk about today, um, the role of a pastor, etc. 
Uh, and I'll tell you, um, I don't have a physical copy of that book. I'll put a, a picture up on the on the YouTube video, and uh, I'll put links in the uh, to Amazon page on, on the uh, uh, the description below. But uh, a book that I do have uh, in my possession is a book by Francis Chan. This is called Letters to the Church. And uh, anybody that knows me knows I, I love all of Francis Chan's books. And this was a particular good one. And actually, a lot of the things um, that Frank Viola and George Barna talk about in Pagan Christianity, he actually touches upon a lot in this book. Uh, Francis Chan has an interesting history. Uh, he founded, uh, I believe it was Cornerstone Church out in... Um, San Diego, I think it was, somewhere in California, uh, that, that grew from basically like a, a Bible study that was meeting in their home, grew to, you know, hundreds and then thousands of people, this like huge mega church over the span of, I think, 15, 20 years. Um, and then he just felt like he was holding it back and God was calling him to do missions. And so he just like up and left his, you know, his mega church that he had founded and created uh, and did mission work in, in uh, China, I believe it was, and other places for a while. And then he felt like God was calling him back to start a house church movement. And so a lot of the stuff he talks about in this book, he, he deals with some of those issues. Um, but he touches upon some of these same kind of issues that, that, that Frank and George talk about in Pagan Christianity, about how the modern church format is really antithetical to a lot of biblical principles, but it's also... Uh, not just in its origins may have been pagan, but the fact that that's even more disur dis uh, disturbing, rather, is that it is oftentimes a hindrance to spiritual growth and true uh, Christian unity and fellowship within the church itself. And so, as we get into this, and like I said, we'll be touching upon a lot of different topics on this over the course of the next several weeks. Uh, today, I just want to talk about the idea of the church building. Um, you know, as I'm recording this, I'm sitting in my office uh, in a uh, large uh, metal building that was built about 10 years ago. Um, I think originally it cost somewhere around five, six hundred thousand dollars, and we still owe, um, I don't know, about a hundred and forty thousand dollars on that. We're paying monthly payments to the Baptist Foundation uh, that we had borrowed money from 10 years ago. Uh, in order to build this building. And so we're paying monthly mortgages, basically, on the payments on this building that is a, is a good portion of our monthly budget, honestly. Uh, not to mention the, the electric and the heat, because uh, it's a big open um, building. It's a gym building, basically. I think they originally they were going to plan, this was phase one, and they were going to turn this into a gym when they built an actual sanctuary later. Well, then all that kind of fell through. But uh, so it's got an open ceiling, and so it's, it's really kind of a monster of a building to, to heat and to cool because, I mean, the summers get really hot here at Oklahoma, and the winters get pretty chilly. So uh, it, it takes a lot of money and upkeep on this building. And so that's kind of the criticism that, that uh, the authors of Pagan Christianity give is the criticism that uh, Francis Chan actually gives in his uh, book that we're spending a good, I mean, a, the majority, really, uh, of our offering that comes into the church on an upkeep on a building that may be used only a handful of times throughout the week. Uh, especially now in, in the, the aftermath of the whole shutdown in 2020 and the COVID scare and everything there, a lot of churches are have cut out things like Sunday night services. A lot of them were cutting them out even before that, but um, COVID thing kind of exacerbated that. But so you're cutting out Sunday nights and a lot of churches aren't, don't even do anything on Wednesday nights anymore. And, you know, except maybe a youth thing or maybe 
our children's program, but they're not doing a lot of adult things. And if they do anything through the week, they're usually doing home groups or uh, life groups, whatever they call them, uh, connect groups at homes, you know, throughout the week. Uh, and so essentially what it comes down to is the only time you're gathering together in a large group, which is really the only reason to have a large building in the first place, uh, is to have a space to gather for a large group meeting. Uh, the only time that you're meeting in a lot of these churches is Sunday morning worship service. So that kind of really does bring up the question, just practically speaking, we haven't even gotten into the Bible yet, just practically speaking, why are we spending all of our money on this building that we're only using for like a couple of hours on Sunday morning? That's an incredible waste of resources. Um, and, I, and, and I'll be the first to admit, it's like, I, I love this building. It's great that we have this as a resource and we have all this space that we can do all of these things. But it weighs on the back of my mind all the time, the burden and the weight of, of just the resources that we put into this building that are not necessarily being used. Um, well, I know they're not being used to the, to the potential of which we are paying for it. Um, but not even being used to the potential of, of being used for the, the furthering of the kingdom of God. And so there's a lot of issues that go with that. And uh, then the, the, the writers of pagan Christianity would go back to the roots of it and say, hey, look in the New Testament. Where in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the letters of Paul, you know, in the you know, letters of Peter or James or John, you know, where do you see anywhere in the New Testament gather together and meet in a large building? Well, nowhere. It's not in the Bible. Uh, they were meeting in homes. They were gathering together in, in various homes throughout the cities that they were founded in. Um, they didn't have any large area space that they were meeting in. Um, they, uh, they were gathered together in various locations. Um, you know, they would gather together in the temple complex or you know, around in different areas sometimes, but they didn't have a particular building that they you know, kept and paid the upkeep on and supported like the temple in Jerusalem or even like the synagogues uh, that were all throughout the, you know, that the Jews had in all the different cities. They didn't have any of those kind of spaces. In fact, the early Christians that were Jews still continued to go to synagogue, at least until the persecution from the Jews kind of kicked them and excommunicated them out of the synagogues. Um, but because of the persecution of the Jews, and then later, by the end of the first century, the persecution of the Romans, uh, the Christians were kind of underground. They were kind of hidden, and they met secretly in homes. They met secretly in, in businesses. Uh, they met secretly. There, there's actually a lot of archaeological evidence that they met in uh, tombs. Uh, tomb, you know, we, we, of course, just bury our, our dead in the ground generally uh, today, but, I mean, they had massive sepulchers and um, tombs. Um, and, and uh, you know, underground caves and places where they would bury people back in those days. And a lot, there's a lot of evidence, archaeological evidence, that Christians would meet uh, in, in, in tombs. And so, you know, we kind of think about going to the graveyard and, and you know, on Halloween as being the spooky kind of scary thing. Well, the Christians were meeting, you know, every Lord's Day, every Sunday, in, you know, in a, in a graveyard, basically. And so uh, there, there's a lot of things like that. But they didn't meet in any kind of building. They didn't have any kind of buildings. In fact, they did not have any buildings in, for the first 300 years of the Christian movement. Um, it was not until Constantine, Emperor Constantine, um, supposedly converted to Christianity. I personally do not think he really did, or at least did not until the very end of his life, if then. 
But Emperor Constantine supposedly became a Christian and legalized Christianity, made it, you know, he released the, uh, the Edict of Toleration, I believe in 313 AD, um, that, that ended the persecution of the Christians. Um, and then furthermore, he really sort of, I'm not sure if he ever officially did or if it was just by virtue of the emperor was Christian and promoted Christianity, he sort of made Christianity the state religion of Rome rather than uh, the Roman paganism that it had been until that point. And when he did that, all of a sudden it was cool <laughs> to be, or politically at least, you wanted, to be, you wanted to be friends with the emperor, you had to convert to his religion. And so it became a fad, it became cool for everyone to become Christian. Um, in fact, there are stories, I don't know if there's any uh, actual evidence or if it was just kind of a rumor, but there were stories that uh, the emperor would give you a new robe and a bag of gold if you converted to Christianity. Well, they came out of the woodworks, you know, to everybody's coming to join Christianity then. Uh, and it's at that point that a lot of these pagan practices kind of got interjected into the church. And uh, certainly by the end of the first century, the Jewish influences were pretty much uh, being weaned out of the Christian movement. Um, it was primarily Jewish in the first couple of decades after that. But once the uh, destruction of Jerusalem took place in 70 AD um, and the temple was destroyed, there was a, ma a major schism between uh, um, the Jews and the, and the, the Gentile Christians. And, and so uh, the Christianity after the first century became primarily a Gentile religion. Well, the Gentiles were all pagans in that they were worshiping the Roman gods, the Greek gods, the local gods of whatever region they were from. Um, and they brought a lot of those practices with them when they converted to Christianity. You see it even in the New Testament. You've got, in, especially in the book of uh, Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, um, the city in Corinth and the church there was struggling with uh, temple prostitution, essentially is what it was. But you had this practice where, um, you know, in order to be a good citizen and participate in the cultus or the, you know, the pagan cult uh, or the religion of the Romans, uh, to, to be a good citizen and to bless the community and to um, be considered an upstanding member of that society, you had to participate in the Roman religion, which there involved uh, the temple of Aphrodite or Venus, uh, the goddess of erotic love, uh, and you would have temple prostitutes that you would engage in sexual relations with in order to give sacrifice to the gods. Um, well, you can imagine that was very popular. Um, and they struggled with that uh, in Corinth even after they became Christians. And that's a lot of the stuff that Paul is writing to them about. He's like, hey, you've got to cut that stuff out. So, I mean, they were already dealing with a lot of these pagan practices of the Gentiles being brought in. Um, you know, the Jews, they dealt with a lot of different issues. The Jewish converts to Christianity, they were struggling with still remaining in that Jewish system and uh, trying to rely on the law to, to save them instead of Christ. And so there's a lot of dealings with that. Of course, I'm, I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews that, that's kind of dealing with a lot of those things about these Jewish Christians that are sort of trying to fall back into the Jewish system. And so, you know, they dealt with that too. But, you know, Paul's letters, he's the, the apostle primarily to the Gentiles. He's dealing with all of these kinds of issues. So you had that even in the, in the New Testament times in the first couple of decades after uh, the founding of the church, you're dealing with these pagan practices coming into the church. Well, it was just exacerbated by the time of Constantine. And so when Christianity becomes this sort of state religion, um, all of a sudden the persecution's ended, you're getting a lot of political pull, 
which that's a whole other story. This is when the bishops, uh, the leaders of the churches, started getting involved in politics, and that was really a downfall in the church. Um, you know, the, the emphasis on evangelism and the, the sacrament and, of, of Christ and, and, and you know, the, the fellowship of the believers really kind of got pushed to the background where these religious leaders started taking these higher positions of power and influence um, to the point where they're, they're you know, sick on power. They're, they're high on power rather than on Christ. But, uh, you know, all of these things took place. Well, now that the persecution's ended and you're getting all this religious and, and political favor from the emperor, now you're commissioned by the emperor to build places of worship. And what do they pattern that on? Well, they pattern them on the pagan temples that were around them because that's what they grew up with. That's what they knew. And uh, that's a, a thing that, that the authors of Pagan Christianity bring out. It says, hey, the, the ancient you know, cathedrals that were being built um, were based off pagan temples that were built to pagan gods. And so it was, you know, this whole format of uh, a stage or an elevated place where the the priest uh, could offer their their services before the people and the people were sort of spectators and not participating in it and these sitting in these rows of chairs uh, or pews, these benches. Uh, all of that has pagan origins. Now, I don't have any problems with them saying that because that's basically true. Uh, from what my understanding of history, and I'm a big history buff, that basically is true what, what the authors are saying there. The question that comes to mind though is, and they, and they even bring this up, they would say, well, just because it's pagan doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Um, there are a lot of things in our culture that don't have direct biblical origins that are pagan in origin. Uh, and they give a number of examples in the book, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but you know there are other things that you know. I mean, the the Phoenicians gave us our modern alphabet, for example, and that's pagan as you know pagan as pagan can be. Uh, the Phoenician culture is very very uh, wicked, evil culture, but they gave us the alphabet that we use today. So, you know, that's a pagan thing that we use, and we don't have a problem using that. And so it's not, it's not an issue in and of itself that it's pagan. The question and the problem that, that, that Frank, Viola, and uh, George Barna have is, does this hinder the um, relationship and the spiritual development of Christians in the church and the fellowship of the body of believers? And um, I will say, personally, it's one that's always kind of bugged me, and I've struggled with this idea, as I talked about, about the building, but also the way the... The, the pews or the chairs, it doesn't matter if you have chairs or, or benches or whatever, they're always facing forward and you're always staring at, you know, 12 rows of, you know, the backs of somebody's head in front of you and you're all fixed upon the stage. There's an elevated place where the pastor, the priest, the bishop, whatever they're called, and usually a worship leader, a singer, a song leader, a worship band, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how, what form it takes, are up there doing and performing all of these actions of the, of the service, and that you will, in the pew are just a spectator observing these things with very, very little participation in them. Um, and that has been the way it has been since the you know, 4th century, since the 300s, uh, when Constantine took over. This has been basically the way it's been. Um, I mean, even going from Catholicism, which the early church, there was only the Catholic church, and Catholic just, the word Catholic just means universal. 
Uh, so when you see Catholic Church and the Apostle Creed, it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, it's talking about the universal church, as in the, the church everywhere. Um, and then there was, you know, the, the East-West split that took place, I think, 1040, 1080, somewhere there about A.D. Uh, of course, what we're more familiar with in, in the Baptist circles is the Protestant Reformation that took place in the 1500s, uh, first under Luther, of course, and then Calvin and Zwingli and some others. Uh, although there were, there were uh, pieces of it that took place even before Luther came along, his, his uh, uh, 95 Theses really just kind of was the, the spark that lit the, the tender that was already in, being put in place uh, in reforming the church. But <clears throat> even after the Reformation, you, and you did away with the, the priesthood, so to speak, and you did away with... Um, this sort of sacramental service of the Lord's Supper being, you know, sort of like an offering Christ as sacrifice again, um, and some of the pagan practices there. Um, you know, even in the modern Protestant church, you still follow this same sort of idea of, you know, sitting in this building, in these pews, facing forward, and the preacher, the song leaders are, are performing all these services, and you are just a spectator. And the problem with that is, if you're not engaging um, in the actual you know, service itself, it tends to lead to, well, boredom. You know, I mean, how many people fall asleep during the pastor's sermon? You know, how many people don't sing when the praise team is leading songs? Um, we more and more, especially in our modern age, especially in the last couple of decades with the whole um, you know, contemporary worship movement and the seeker-sensitive kind of movement, You've got more and more of this idea of with the greater stereo equipment and the lights and the fog machines and you know, you've got spotlights coming down from you know, I mean with all of this stuff we're basically following in our own modern sense a pagan structure of a modern rock concert um, and we're we're kind of like copying that same sort of mentality. And, uh, you know, and well, what do you do at a rock concert? Well, you listen and you might raise your hands and, and kind of, you know, you know, jumping up and down to it or whatever, but you're not really participating in it. You're a spectator. You're observing it. And so um, you've got the same kind of thing going on in the modern church. You're, you're really just a spectator sitting in the pew and you're not really exercising any spiritual gifts. Um, you know, what is the point of spiritual gifts and how can you possibly use them in your everyday modern church setting? And that's one thing that, that uh, Francis Chan talks about in this book. Uh, and it's one that's kind of stuck with me for a while. You know, if you say, you know, we, we do as a part of our uh, new believers or new members class, it's called Next Steps. Uh, part four is uh, we talk, we do a spiritual gift assessment and a personality profile uh, kind of thing. But we, we go through and find out, okay, well, here's your spiritual gifts, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, if your spiritual gift is, you know, prophecy, or if your spiritual gift is speaking in tongues, or your spiritual gift is, um, you know, prayer, or your spiritual gift is X, Y, and Z, that that would really be beneficial in an actual service that we perform. But you're not the song leader. You're not the preacher. You're not, you know, one of the leaders that's on the stage. How can you properly exercise your spiritual gifts? Well, the answer is you can't in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. And that has, over the centuries, really, not even just decades, over the centuries, has led to uh, this idea that we have paid staff that perform the duties of the church. 
and the people in the church just come and and are spectators and just listen, and then they're not really participating in it, um, which carries, in my mind, carries a number of consequences to that because then it carries over into their everyday life. Well, I'm not a priest of the Lord. I'm not an evangelist. You'll hear that a lot. Well, my my spiritual gift is not evangelism. Well. That, you know, the spiritual gift of evangelism is an above and beyond normal calling upon someone's life. It doesn't mean that we can't evangelize. But you get this mentality of, hey, that's what we pay those staff people for, or that's what they're for. I'm just here to observe and, and go home and live my life. Um, and it leads to this kind of idea of not participating, not just in the service, but not participating in the kingdom and in service in the kingdom at all in your everyday life. Um, and if you've got that mentality, then nothing's happening. And so I can definitely see the, the detriment and the, the negative effects of the way we do our modern sort of um, uh, traditional sort of setting. And so, um, and then of course, as I was talking about at the beginning, just the, the, the difficulties and the, just practically humanly speaking, uh, the practical problems of trying to maintain the upkeep on a building that you really only use for a couple of hours a week is just not practical at all. Um, and so I know that's, a, that's sort of a sacred golden calf for a lot of people, you know, and then, man, you want to talk about upsetting people. Tell them, let's talk about, hey, what if we got rid of the building? What would our church look like? <laughs> Because that blows people's minds because they're like, well, the building is the church. You know, we talk about going to church or, hey, that's my church over there on the highway. Or, yeah, my church is over there. You know, it's like a place. It's a location. And if we don't have that location, somehow the identity of the church is gone in our minds, which, of course, is the problem because the church is not the building. The church is the people. We are the building. We are the temple of God, our bodies, our, our congregation. Uh, in fact, the word ekklesia, uh, which is the Greek word that gets you know, used as church in the New Testament, ekklesia doesn't have anything to do with a building. An ekklesia it means a congregation or an assembling of people. Um, it's not about where they meet. It's about the meeting of the people and so the gathering together. And so uh, it's, you know, we, can, we can meet in a field. We can meet in homes. We can meet in a gym at the high school. We can meet in the senior citizen center down the road. We can meet out front in the parking lot of the Apple Market. You know, but you know, the, the church exists wherever the church people are. It's not a building, but we still have this mentality, and we have really had this mentality from you know, those early centuries on. Uh, in the book, uh, they actually talk about, um, I think is uh, Clement of Alexandria, which is writing about 130 A.D., uh, is the first person to actually say something like, go to church, and he's talking about going to a location. So even within a hundred years after Christ was resurrected and the church was founded, within a hundred years you already had people shifting to that sort of mentality. Now, I get all of these problems, and there are problems that I struggle with and that I think about constantly as, as problems, but on the other side, on the flip side, kind of play the, the devil's advocate to, to this uh, argument that, that um, Viola and Barna are making in pagan Christianity, you still have to ask some of the, the legitimate questions like, well, if I have a congregation of 100 people, we'll say 100 people, we're not even talking mega church sizes, 100 people, which is about 
really about 80% of your churches are 100 members or below. It might even be more than like 85%, but a good majority of the churches in America are 100 or less members and regular attendance. So if I've got 100 members in my church, I don't know about you guys, but 100 people are not going to fit in my living room. Um, Honestly, in my living room, we'd be good to get 10 or 15 in there. Um, And so, you know, just logistically, practically speaking, where are you going to gather? Well, sure, we could gather out in the field. We could gather in a parking lot, maybe we could work something out. Uh, But then you got to deal with weather issues. Well, if it's pouring down rain or if there's two foot of snow on the ground, um, it's going to be a detriment to people to come and, and to be a part of that. Um, if you're going to meet in places like the high school gym or the senior citizen center, well, you've got to secure that. You might have to pay rent probably to, to do that. So you're still back to kind of square one about paying for use of space. And so if you have your own space, you already have that. So, I mean, I see the flip side of it too. There's reasons why we have buildings because they are good resources for us. Um, and if, and you know, hopefully your church is an open church, but I mean, I also believe in, in the churches being, uh, open to the community to be able to use as well. We are a community resource, and so, you know, if there's meetings of, of community groups that want to meet, I mean, as long as they're not, you know, something crazy or, or terrible or wicked, but, you know, if there's community groups that want to meet here, like the Boy Scouts or something like that, then, you know, we want to offer the, the use of the building to them for that purpose, and so, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it as well, and so, as we're going to see as we go through this, um, there's, there's a lot of caveats on all of these topics. And I, I, uh, I like this book. I like the way that they question um, those sort of things that we take for granted. But I don't agree with every one of their conclusions. Because I will tell you, uh, Frank Viola is a big uh, proponent of what he calls organic church. And uh, he doesn't call it house church because he doesn't care whether you meet in a house or meet somewhere else. His, uh, his whole goal is that you're, you're focusing on um, members fellowshipping together as a family, like a legitimate family gathering together, and that everyone is participating, and there's no clergy, there's no hierarchy of pastor and laity, um, and everyone is communicating and worshiping together and utilizing their spiritual gifts together in a service where there's no order of service or anything like that. And uh, we'll talk about it more as we get down the line. Um, I don't know that I agree with all the conclusions that they get to from this place, but he, they definitely bring up a good number of things that we should question and we should talk about because we just accept the way that we do things without asking, why do we cut the ends off of that pound cake? And um, it's good to know why we do the things that we do and for what reason and whether or not we can change some of these things. And change, even though it's hard for us so often, change is a good thing most of the time. Change is not usually a bad thing. Things get stagnant when you stay the same. And that's where a lot of modern churches are today. They've been doing the same thing for decades, for decades and nothing has changed essentially since you know the church was founded in the 40s or the 1950s you know and and they're still doing the same things in the same ways that they've always done them since you know the 80 year old people in the congregation were little babies they've been doing the same thing and um, familiarity breeds contempt and uh, if you're doing the same thing then you're just doing these rote motions you're going through the motions and you're not really worshiping God as you should 
And so in all of these things, we want to make sure that the building is not a hindrance. We want to make sure that the order of service is not a hindrance. We want to make sure that the, the arrangement of the chairs and the stage and however these practices go are not a hindrance to people coming to Christ and putting Christ at the center uh, as the centerpiece of the worship service. And so I think that's where I'll leave it today. And, uh, you know, next time we'll talk about, um, let's see. Well, let me get there. Well, next time we'll talk about another issue in this book. But uh, like I said, I'm going to spend like the next several weeks talking about this. And uh, um, I really, oh, let's uh, talk about the order of worship next week. That makes sense. So the order of worship, we'll get into that in more detail next week. And uh, like I said, I'm going to spend several several weeks talking about these because there's a lot of different issues that go that go with this. And uh, kind of critique uh, the good, the kind of sort of pros and cons of this book. Like I said, I'll have the links to this book if you're interested in purchasing it for yourself, Pagan Christianity. Uh, I will say um, Viola and Barnum have a second book that's actually the companion book to this, uh, and they will say, I haven't read that one yet, it's called Rethinking, I believe it's Rethinking Church, uh, where they really espouse their uh, view of organic church and how this should function. And so uh, they would say pagan Christianity is sort of deconstructing, tearing down the, the ideas that we've grown up with about what church is. And then rethinking Christianity is rebuilding back up a, a view of what Christianity and the church should look like. And so uh, maybe somewhere down the line, when I, when I get that book and read it, uh, we can talk and do a, a series on that one as well. So Pagan Christianity, Frank Viola and George Barna, and then, of course, uh, Francis Chan, Letters to the Church. Both of these are great books, and I would recommend them uh, if you like to read that kind of stuff. So that's where I'm going to leave you guys this week, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Have a good week.